Like there's a weird vibe like are we gonna start fighting and clawing each other's <laughs> eyes out or something i feel like i'm gonna go off the rails this podcast no i really don't think you feel that way i think you know and you have your <laughs> talents like not quite retracted yet but you're on your way all right so this is i don't know or how many of down the hatch podcast the podcast about swallowing we're tackling the topic of evidence-based practice and this is not necessarily something that only relates to swallowologists, but I think it has particular relevance to us because my opinion is that we have some sort of like new converts to, it's almost like newly saved people who like everyone's a sinner, like they're Bible thumping EBP people, like they never used to practice, now they do, so everyone's a sinner. And then you see people screaming about these things that aren't in the Bible and are, you know where I'm going with this, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm worried that the literature is being taken so seriously that if somebody steals, they're gonna get their hand cut off, <laughs> AKA does the Masako <laughs> maneuver or something, and doesn't have evidence for that. So the cool thing is that we have a colleague here who will introduce himself, who is not a speech pathologist, but has some interesting thoughts on the difference between evidence-based practice and theory-based practice. So Alicia, why don't you start by introducing yourself? So I'm Alicia, most of you know me if you've been listening to the podcast. I'm a third year PhD student under Dr. Ianessa Humbert. I have a background clinically, mostly in acute care, uh, for about five or six years before venturing onto my research career. And that's it. I'm Andrew Lotto, and I'm a professor here at UF in Speech, Language, and Hearing Science and the director of the UF uh, Hearing Research Center. I am not a speech pathologist. I am not an audiologist. Tell us who you are, Dr. Lotto. Well, I'm a cognitive scientist. Okay. So I have nothing, I actually don't study clinical things at all, and yet I'm going to shoot my mouth off. Oh, that <laughs> is the perfect situation because all we do in this podcast is shoot our mouth off, right? <laughs> With zero evidence slash theory to back it up. So the first thing you can do is start out this conversation by telling us what the difference is in your mind between evidence-based practice, practice and what you have introduced to us and perhaps introduced in general, I mean, I hadn't heard this before you mentioned it, um, theory-based practice. Okay, um, let me actually give you a little background. So I, um, because I was a math major when I was younger, I've often been stuck with uh, helping people with their statistics and actually reviewing papers because of, that have a lot of statistical content, despite the fact that I don't have that much of a background in statistics. And one of the things it led me to realize was how much of our evidence base is uh, tainted by some problems that we have in the way we do science, the way publications are biased, etc. And it made me realize that a lot, if you start to depend on individual studies, chances are pretty high that you, when you see a significant finding, it's what we call a false positive. That is, it's not necessarily an effect that's real, but you can come up with a statistically significant effect and get it published. And so as I've moved from my kind of theoretical cognitive science work into speech and hearing, I've seen this idea of evidence-based practice where you rely on these studies, where you rely on data heavily in order to make decisions on whether a therapeutic approach is valid or not. And the concern is that even if you can find an individual study that shows you a significant effect, P less than 0.05, that that's not necessarily a strong um, basis for making decisions on therapy. It's also the case that I think most scientists have, who are research scientists have a tough time evaluating research claims. It's something that even scientists aren't particularly good at. So the idea that a clinician who has everything else going on can also make really good evaluations of research uh, seems uh, not, I was going to say ludicrous, that seems a little strong, but it, to, to, to think that, that they would have the time to actually do that is, to me, insane. So, But wait, we yes. have a research methods class. 
certainly that covers everything we need to know about research. Yeah. No? No. So, in fact, one of my uh, most people who do research, and especially those who only take a certain re a single research methods class, actually don't know what it means to say that effect is statistically significant. Um, there was a study done a while back where they actually asked faculty members, it was in a psych, psych department at the time, but faculty members who weren't teaching statistics at the time, what it meant for to say that something is P less than 0.05. And it turned out 90% of them got it wrong. So can I just interject here and make sure that everybody understands that statistical significance of P equals 0 0.05 or less is sort of the benchmark or gold standard for where we can say there's a difference between two things. In research, we put forth a hypothesis that something is different from something else. And the only way you can say that they're different is if when you compare them in whatever statistical test you use, hopefully the right one, um, that the, the difference is P.05 or less. Now, um, the ultimate issue here is that you can get that number and have a tiny insignificant difference, or you can get that number and there's actually really something different. So there is what Dr. Lotto is separating is the math that's supposed to represent this physiologic difference that sometimes tells us there's a difference and sometimes doesn't. And what you're saying is faculty members who have PhDs don't always even understand what that number really means. Yes. Well, actually, I'll go further than that. Okay. The statistical methods we use were never designed to mm -hmm. do what we're using them for. That is, the, the people who develop these statistical methods there are actually two camps that develop two different kinds of statistical methods. The one we use is neither of those. We've taken a bastardization of the two, put them together, and we use that statistical method. So this idea of putting down a, a, a criterion and saying if it's less than 0 0.05 chance of happening, then it's statistically significant was never developed by any theoretician. So, ooh, theoretician. Statistical theoretician, yes. You so, do, is that like a magician? Like, is that a real of, thing? I, it, it is now because I because you said, said it. I said okay, it. all right. <laughs> so okay, so let's take we're gonna we're gonna take this bastard yeah. that we all use. Let's just say we like this bastard, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think your main point is that evidence-based practice is not necessarily the best route because of all the science that may or may not support these studies that we say that we really need to follow and. Can you sort of differentiate the points between what is evidence-based practice? What are some major points that mm -hmm. we're, everyone thinks they know what it is, but sounds like we don't actually know. Um, it's sort of like when um, they say, what is organic? I was like, all I know is I only eat organic. And people are like, okay, define organic. Like, you know, like it comes from the earth. It's like, oh, it's organic. Like we don't want to be that. So what is evidence-based practice? And what is this other idea, which is theory-based okay. practice? So first, most descriptions of evidence-based practice make clear that the evidence is only one part of making a clinical decision. The other parts are the uh, therapist's own background and experience and also the needs and wants of the, the client or patient. But the third part is having some kind of data or background in, in evidence, a study, et cetera, that shows the efficacy of the therapy you're using. Mm -hmm. And I understand the, the motivation for it is clear which is that there are a lot of therapies out there that have no scientific validity whatsoever. And so as a field to come along and say, listen, we want to make sure that people aren't out there doing therapies that have no, no validity whatsoever, mm -hmm. no scientific backing whatsoever. That's a nice impulse. It's like that deodorant stick you rub across your forehead for your headache to go away. You guys, have you yeah. seen that? Head on, rub on the forehead. <laughs> I'm thinking that that's, probably that's science probably might not back yeah. that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yes. So, well, there's a, I'm sure there's a variety of these um, therapies in swallowing. There are some in speech that are just mm -hmm. not valid. Uh, in hearing, there's this thing called binaural beats, which are where you play two sounds to each ear, and if they're slightly off in pitch, you get this uh, beating that goes in the middle of your head that you hear. And there's a suggestion, if you look on the web, that that can cure 
you fr- it can keep you from smoking cigarettes and you can lose weight. <laughs> oh my god! Can keep the devil away. It's uh, <laughs> they actually there's a place that sells them and claims they work like drugs, and so you actually purchase wow. like the cocaine one, etc. So anyway, oh my goodness. <laughs> no scientific basis for that. No one's ever done studies. So that's that's the impulse. The problem is that having a study that show that shows a significant effect doesn't necessarily mean that it's that you would have a valid uh, therapy and there's a there's a lot of ways in one study can be particularly wrong what we really mean when we say these uh, therapies that our people are using are scientifically invalid what we really mean is not that someone has shown that they don't work but that there's no reason to believe they would work that's because if you understand the theory, if you understand the way systems work, and not just a theory in swallowing, but if you understand how neural systems work, mm-hmm. if you understand how motor learning works, mm-hmm. if you understand those levels of of the process of human processing, you can come up with a therapy that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the problem with binaural beats is that they if you understand acoustics and hearing, you know it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to say right. that. So let me just see if I can understand what you're saying. Someone does not understand the theory behind toasting bread, right? They're from someplace else, yet they have been hired as the bread toaster in a like a diner. You are the person who toasts bread. So someone comes up to them and says, you know, if you just step on raw bread and dance like a leprechaun, it will toast. But because they have no background in how bread gets toasted, they start dancing on it. But for you and I, who've not only toasted bread, we've burnt it before, we would immediately go, why on earth would dancing on toast like a leprechaun make it toast? Like we would immediately question that. You couldn't even put it past us. So if I understand what you're saying is understanding the theory of the system or understanding the system helps you to apply theory-based practice, which you still have not yet defined for us. I am on the edge of my seat. Could you please tell us what theory-based practice is? So theory-based practice is still taking into account the therapist's uh, background or, or how their experience. It's still taking into account the client's um, demand or not demands, their wishes, et cetera. But, it all, but it, what it also is based on is understanding the, the systems that you're working with and coming up with approaches, coming up with therapies that fit with known theories of how these systems work. So for instance, if you understand motor learning mm-hmm. and you're dealing with a motor learning task, whether it's speech or swallowing, etc., you will know which principles should work versus those that don't. You don't need to look it up. You don't need to pull out a paper and say, no, they showed it work. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that you have this, this actually thousands of studies that have usually build up things like motor learning, which there's thousands of studies on built that theory, that that knowledge base, and you're using that knowledge base to move forward instead of going to find some reference and writing out what the reference is and says, see here, I have it, so now I'm safe, that mm-hmm. that's your get you know, get out of jail card is because you have somebody's article. It's because you have a complete understanding of the way the system works. Yeah. It's sort of like I think of this is let's go into a pet peeve. When you ask somebody why are you having patients say cuh or wag their tongue for UES dysfunction? <laughs> well, there was a study that showed that patients that did ka and ga, they had better diet outcomes post-treatment. <laughs> no rationale, no physiologic connection between what they did and what the outcome was, it's just, well, according to blah, 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 in 1985, studies showed, but when you get into, well, what were they measuring? What were they looking at? What were their outcomes? You realize it's bogus, but what's missing, forget about the paper, there's no rationale or theory as to why that would even make sense. Right. Yeah, I think whether you're talking about evidence-based practice or theory-based practice, the bottom line is, what is the practice? Do you understand the practice? If you don't understand what it is that you're supposed to be doing, then it doesn't matter if you're applying some theory or evidence because you don't know what you're doing. You don't understand why saying ka would not impact the UES at all. Like, it, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so if I could just make a suggestion or make a, a comment that you can tell me, if this is a problem. 
I would argue that people who do the ka and the ga, people who do taping on the jaw, all of these people who do, is it chin tuck against resistance, sitar, mm -hmm. if you ask them the rationale, if we start letting people say, oh, well, here's my theory, they, it, it, do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I worry about the extent to which people who think they understand the system will say, well, I understand the system. So this is my theory for why I think this should work. I don't need somebody's paper. I got my brain, right? <laughs> so how, how bad can that go against it? I'm wondering if theory-based practice works in a situation where everyone is so up on how a system works that that competency level allows them the freedom to say, okay, I know when to take this paper into consideration. I know when it doesn't apply. I understand the caveats of science, etc. Is it really more in a, of an advanced concept? Or do you think that a field that doesn't have enough evidence should be using it or not? You want to say something? I do. Okay. I think I just that... want to say that that pause was a little <laughs> like the, the, the lean back breathe like... <sighs> Okay, who's going to take I it? Think, I think theory has to come first, and I think that that's the foundation. I think the problem that we are experiencing is that people are jumping over theory and going straight to the get-out-of-jail-free card. They want to find that paper that mm -hmm. validates what they say mm -hmm. and what they do so without understanding why. So it's backwards. Yes. It's like, I'm already doing this. It's like trying to remember why you married somebody. You're like... Let me go back to them pictures right quick because <laughs> you are get like maybe that decision wasn't right, but I need to go back to our videos, some VHS cassettes or something because I'm trying to remember why I did this. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think and it, it sounds it. more sciencey yeah. to say, well, according to Brown, you know, in 2014, who stated blah blah blah. That sounds science more validating. Yeah, exactly. And that's and then they're in and I think in in the the mind it's. That's evidence-based practice. I do something and I can throw a paper at it and right. I can cite it. And But if you ask, well, what's the rationale behind that? Why would that work? It's like, <laughs> and that's the, to me, that's a, the problem because now we're just blind leading the blind. So it's interesting you say that it's more scientific when you can pull out a paper and say, here are the data. It and sounds I, more I know scientific. It, but I agree but that that's what everybody yet. thinks. And it's a, actually a problem in anybody's approaches to science. The end product of science are not data. It's not an empirical study, it's a theory. Theories are what we do. Yeah. Theory is the product. So when you say science is building a knowledge base, the knowledge base are theories, which is why if I know the theory, I don't have to tell you what paper something came out of. Well, you, I, I hear you. Yes. And we have, we have, okay, on the spectrum of clinic to research, it's Alicia who's clinic researchy. Mm -hmm. It's me who's researchy clinicy, and it's you just research, right? Yes. So here's the issue that I'm already thinking about as sort of the middle person is scientists, true blue scientists, don't necessarily want the answer. They want the process to get to a general way of thinking. I agree with you, right? They're not saying, does penicillin, does that? The reason we get to the point where we want to know if ibuprofen reduces headaches is because patients need an answer. So while it's true that science was never really always just to get an answer to a specific question, like it, if you drain someone's blood all out onto the sidewalk, do they live? We don't need to do that study probably, right? But on the other end, we're dealing with clinical research, which I think is the bastard of science, if you will. Oh, it's completely. Right? Because... We have clinicians who we answer to as researchers who want to know, should they use this treatment? And we are in it. We have our backs against the wall, if you will, because we're often saying, the more you know about swallowing and science, the more you can't answer. Shh. Jack. Yes. Right? No, this is completely <laughs> the case that the clinical research has a problem, has several problems. The first is that you want a specific answer, which is why we have this stupid criterion in the first place of if it's P less than 0 0.05, yeah. it's true. If it's greater than that, it's not. There's, science is a probabilistic enterprise, so we can't give you the yes and no answer, but we've done this. We've stuck one in. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the P stands for probability. Probability, yes. And then that's really important to say here. It's not It's not like a yes, no, alive, dead situation or yeah. black, white. Yeah. It's It's a, the probability that you're correct more so. Yes. Yeah. So that's the problem. The other problem with clinical research is that as a scientist and as a clinician, you have 
two different um, uh, desiderata, the, the, the things that you want to, to do going forward. So when I'm studying someone as a clinician, I want them to act the same every single time. Because to me, as a scientist, mm -hmm. variability is the devil. Is the devil. Yeah, we hate so it. if I have a bunch of clinicians, I want you to all act the same, regardless <laughs> of your patient, so I can tell you if this thing worked or not. Mm -hmm. If you start acting differently with different patients... I can't answer the question. can't answer the question. <laughs> so what I'm asking you to do is to be not a clinician because as a clinician your first viewpoint is I vary my practice based on the individual the particular case everything's different and my experience as a clinician except for the clinicians who give out work workbooks for every single patient that okay. comes to the door <laughs> let, me, let me say let me cut to a good, good clinician okay, I'm telling go. you not to Qualified. be a good there is a group of clinicians out there that you could study yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I promise you <laughs> But I'm asking you to be to be not a good clinician so that I can get rid of my variability. Yes. yes. And so that that's the problem is that that those two uh, enterprises are sort of. Um, so yes. so you, what you're saying is exactly something. Anyone who's been a part of a study protocol two hundred one, any swallowing research protocol where you were helping to collect data, and you were asked, you were sat down as you often are to follow this protocol in your practice if you want to sign people up for this study. And you have to abandon things you would probably do to help them or add in things you would never think to do to match this protocol. Yes. And then we give you this answer saying this did this and did this did that. And then all you do is you present it at a clinical meeting like ASHA or DRS and everyone goes, but what about this patient? And what about that patient? You're like, we don't know. We don't know. What about this bolus? What about that bolus? We don't know. We don't know. And that's because we abandon all of that heterogeneity yes. to give you a specific answer about one thing and it, you it's your job then to go from theory to evidence to theory right so that you understand the theory of swallowing you take in this evidence because it helps to formulate a theory that would work with your individualized clinical treatment it's not it's not for you to take this paper and shove it in the patient's face and say this is why you have to do emst you just have <laughs> to do it yeah. so and so it all said so i know it doesn't apply to you but this is what you're doing. Yes. I mean, the, the, the reason we have research studies are be, is because our theories we test empirically. That is, they come up with hypotheses. We run to see whether those actually match with. And so that's the purpose of data is to actually va validate the theories. Mm -hmm. So to now take the theory away and go to the, our studies, you've, you've, again, you've, take, you've gone backwards on the whole enterprise. Mm -hmm. Those studies are there to give us the theories. Right. That's what you do for science. Right. And so, if, so what we should be getting across to uh, clinicians is here are the theories, here's the background, et cetera. I have had many times where um, researchers in the field, uh, big researchers in speech, et cetera, have said they've gone to ASHA, they've had a thing on with basic researchers, where just a working group with basic researchers, nobody shows. Meanwhile, down the hall is somebody who said, well, I had 10 people with some disorder. We ran a two-week study, and we got a trend towards something, and the room is full. Yeah. And yeah. like, why are you listening to that yeah. when there are people over here giving you theories based on thousands of studies? Right. Well, I think it's a work problem. I'm going to put this out there. Remember you said that you're going to be on a roll in this? I think we're going to start that role, Alicia, because my worry is this. You have people who want recipes, and they consider evidence-based practice to be a recipe. And it's like the person who says, look, I can only bake if you tell me down to the brand of flour, I enriched flour, should I get Publix brand, should I get Kroger's brand, or should I get Arthur's? If you don't tell me the brand, I can't make these scones. And other people who can just, I get the principles of baking, let me just whip open my pantry and say, all right, we can't do brownies, but we can do scones, because I get the general yes. things of what we need. So it's almost like you need a combination of both. There might be areas where you don't get the theory. Like you get a patient who's like, why do you have dysphagia? Dermatomyo what? Oh, I'm gonna need to look this up because I have no basis for this. You go look that crap up and then you figure something out. Yeah. But then you have the patients you have seen a zillion times and yet you still have no background on what to expect and you're looking for the paper to explain it. It doesn't, you know, it's sort of, you have to go from, it's, oh my gosh, it's the French word for head, tet. Yeah. T-E-T, -E -T. like you have to go mm -hmm. theory, evidence, theory, evidence, theory, evidence, yeah. all the time. You have to use your head, literally. Otherwise, you'll never figure it out yep. if you just do theory all the time and never look anything up and just make shit up, oops, all the time. Or 
if you only ever rely on exact protocol for everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think here's what's interesting about my, my background is, so I practiced for six years before ever having any touching into research, right? Then I got into research and this whole, I'm a clinician this whole time. It's not like I switched hats, I didn't drop anything, but I've changed as a clinician very much. So I will say this though, is that I've become a better clinician, not because I know the research better and I can cite papers and I can, you know, spout off what the study design was, but through reading research, I understand theory better behind physiologically why certain things make sense when they work. Yeah. I understand the physiology better. I understand motor learning better. I understand the mechanism better. And that makes me a better clinician more than having a, a backpack full of Logaman, 1982, um, Jackie Hine, 2001. Mm -hmm. Like being able to spout numbers off, I think that sometimes we tout this, uh, I'm an EBP clinician like it's a Girl Scout badge. Yeah. That it what they call it flare and that flare, yeah, but oh, but man. we're skipping over the 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 theory behind it and why it works and that ah, it drives me nuts because this is when I see people who post this is where I you know, uh oh my, I know my biggest this always peeve. comes back to social media for media it, for it, us social, it is social media <laughs> it is but it isn't but my biggest pet peeve is this soundbite science where Ooh. people go to conferences, they see a slide that showed um, 10 people did, the, did this treatment, X worked on a certain population, someone posts the, post the, the, the slide. The conclusion slide. The conclusion <laughs> slide, and then all of a sudden people are like, I guess we're doing this treatment now. I know, I know. Or, or, or I guess we're abandoning this I guess we're abandoning now. this whole treatment, and it's like... Ask some questions. Scary as hell to well, me. Well, it's like, ask some questions. Ask like, a hey, question. A ask a question. <laughs> Just yeah, ask yeah. Question. I mean, to me, this started when you would watch like, what's that show? Good Morning America. What is Matt Lauer on the Today Show? Right. Yes. I will never forget when he said something like, "Could broccoli kill you?" Up next, I'm like, <laughs> "Go to hell, Matt Lowry. Go to hell immediately. Do not pass go. Go to hell." Right. Yep. And then you, by the time, so I'm like, I'm going to look this New England Journal of Medicine Impact Factor 59 up. Right. And when you read it, they injected a, like three mice with the most concentra concentrated essence of like extract of something that broccoli has for five days straight. And some of them died and the ones who didn't get injected with it night and day didn't. And you're like, how is a moderate amount of broccoli going to affect Ianessa? Yep. It's not. But by the time the Today Show got it, it's your soundbite science. It's like, could broccoli kill you? Yep. You're like, no, Matt, it's not going to kill you. I'm not a mouse getting injected with, you know, 50 doses of whatever broccoli has in it. Yeah. So that that's part of the issue is that science gets a good rap and that it helps to inform us. We don't all want to be flat earthers over here, right? Yeah. On the other hand, it impacts us so that we take it as, mm, shall I say, gospel truth? Right. Yeah. And that if you got to gouge out that eye because you lost it after a woman, then get to gouging. Right. Because yeah. that's what it says to do. Yeah. Well, and I let's go on to pet peeve number 967 from this podcast. But you see people post a question. Hey, you know, I have a patient with UES dysfunction. Should I do the Mendelssohn maneuver? And somebody re replies with an article, just <laughs> the article. And it's like, thanks. What is, like, so why, why does that bother you? It bothers me because I don't think that's the direction we need to go. Let's oh. talk about why would a Mendelssohn work with UES dysfunction. Let's talk about the physiology, conceptually, why it might work. Let's talk about why it wouldn't work, maybe in certain populations. And you can use the evidence to make that conversation a little more rich. Well, in this, in this population, they saw this. Well, this is why it might not apply to my patient. And you can pull things from... from from the research and from evidence to supplement your theory that's grounded. So the first question I have is, this is a mean one, but it does cross my mind. Why would somebody post that question in the first place? Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, 
if you type in Mendelssohn Maneuver, you're going to get at least two Google pages of stuff about it, right? right? I have had patients come in and explain it to me and say, she said in the worksheet, I'm supposed to use my fingers and push up my larynx, but that's not what they said at Lokomen at all, so-and-so, so-and-so. I'm like, good God, Mr. Jones, let me find out you're reading PubMed right now, okay? Yeah. Taxpayer dollars at work. So, I mean, I would say... The first step in this whole, whether you're going with evidence-based or theory-based practices, Google some stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Just look yeah. up some stuff in the first place. Maybe we are now graduating from basic questions. We no longer have much of an excuse to not know a whole lot of everything because it's all at our fingertips. It's right. literally the same smartphone you use to type it in this field. Just make a new page and type it into Google instead. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, saying? I think it's like, it's just scary to me because you can find you can make things significant that make no sense oh yeah you can find correlations it's, if you go to your doctor and he prescribes you ibuprofen because you have a headache and you say you know why would he say well according to a study they showed these yeah. two groups of people the headache was gone I, I i don't know yeah if you yeah if you ask any physician can you describe the physiologic rationale for why ibuprofen reduces my headache they're not going to go well let me start with so and so at all and I'll, I'll walk you up to 1958 and then i'm just going to give you some of these here references to read on your own they probably would not be able to describe that unless they are a headache specialist yeah. right that might be when you'd get that information so it's not necessarily specific to speech pathology even though i'm sure dr lotto perhaps think i don't know when you came from psych were you like wtf well there's because psych really is the stronger in terms of the scientific background for things yes though psychology has gone through uh quite a um self-loathing uh, recently because it's so there was a Replication study where they, they brought in a whole, they took a hundred of the, hundred studies from top journals and they decided they would see how many of them they could replicate. So they, they gave them to new labs, they redid the studies, they, and often they actually worked with the first people who did the studies to make sure the protocol was exactly the same. Uh, and it turned out they could replicate only 36 of the 100 studies. Do you want to, can I just say the importance of replication? It might not be obvious to people, but the reason when you read a study, you have a method section that's supposed to be so detailed is because replication is supposed to suggest that if anyone else did the same study, it should come out the same. And let me just say, Betty Crocker has better replication results than science does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Meaning we could all take that same brownie um, baking situation and come up with pretty similar brownies. But if you took the vast majority of, of studies, when it comes to humans, I don't know about sort of um, some of the basic science where things are more controlled. But when you're talking about studies on humans, you get far less replication, even though they supposedly did exactly the same thing. Well, it actually is not worse in humans. So oh, there's, it's not? So there was one done in chemical uh, analyses that were used for drugs. Oh, and man. I think their replication rate was somewhere around 15%. Oh, that's not much better at all. Uh, no, it's much worse. Fifteen. One not five. Fifty. One oh. five. Mm. So uh, this has been actually going a problem in science a lot recently. So we're all screwed. <laughs> yeah, we suck. Well, <laughs> it's, because, want, people? it's because individual studies have so so much chances of being wrong. There's a yeah, a famous paper called "Why ha Over Half of Scientific Result Published Scientific Results Are Wrong," mm -hmm. and uh, it's actually a fairly simple mathematical analysis, and it's partly due to the fact that we only published findings most of the time that have a statistically significant effect. Right. And so in, just so everybody understands, it is really, really hard to publish a study where you find zero effect. Yes. In fact, especially if you're in like the pharmaceutical situation where you're trying to promote a new drug and it's no better than the standard drug, those papers are really hard to publish because the pharmaceutical companies put so much money into showing it's better that they will often get not published at all, even though it's good to know that the generic or whatever is actually just as good as the supposed new drug. Um, and so that happens in swallowing. It happens in all kinds of clinical research. Yeah. So it's an, it's an issue, and it, it's actually getting worse in part because we have so many more journals where people can publish, including online journals, and because so many more, more people are doing research, in, including the fact mm -hmm. that we push students to do research, et cetera. And everybody thinks it's good. More scientists, the better. But it's pretty easy to realize why this is a problem. So um, what 
going back to p less than 0.05, what p less than 0.05 actually means is that if there was no effect at all, I would get this result 1 out of 20 times. If there was no effect yeah. at all, I would get this result 1 I out of 20 times. I would still get a result that doesn't result. exist yes. 1 out of 20 times. So what that means is if 20 different people are doing a study on something, so let's say 20 people, people across the world are doing a study on something in swallowing. Great, a lot of people are studying it. Even if there's no effect whatsoever, one person yeah. on, is likely to have... And, and who's going to get that study published? And that's the person who's going to publish. Exactly. And the other 19 won't publish. And so what happens is if you if you have a false positive, chances are you're publishing it. <laughs> if you have a negative, chances are you're not publishing it, whether it's true or not. And so that's the problem is there's this bias in the literature. Now, if you rely on individual studies, you have a pretty high chance you're relying on a false positive. And in our field, that's the way it goes. There aren't that many studies on, yeah. for every every treatment, there's probably maybe maybe five yeah. studies in a, in a disordered population. A lot of them are in normals. Yeah. And it's what, it's more likely that your studies are false positive if you have fewer subjects, which we call lower power. Yes. If you have lower power, then the chances, when you find an effect, chances are it was a false positive. Yeah. Well, of course, clinical studies with a population are most, are tend Small. to be low powered. You yeah. can't get that many subjects. So if you rely on single studies, your chances are pretty high that you have a false positive. That's the whole idea of going to theory based because when you're, when you're dealing with a theory, one study can't take a theory down. If one study doesn't build a theory, one study doesn't take it down. It's an accumulation of data, an accumulation of studies that determine whether a theory survives or not. And so it really is the, uh, you know, the unit of knowledge that science is supposed to work with. And so the problem with evidence-based practice is now the unit of knowledge is single studies. Right and not theories. And so that's the idea. Not several studies that yeah. build a theory. Yes. Mm -hmm. So so we basically just like trashed science and everybody's hopes and dreams. Like there are some people who are like, I'm going to do dysphagia grand rounds and I'm going to learn everything. Yeah. And now we're like, science sucks, which is not really what we're saying. But if I can just say this here, and I like to make this point, it is totally possible that no study in swallowing has seen a truly spontaneous swallow. Think about the only way that we can image swallowing. You're sitting in front of an x-ray machine drinking chalky barium to somebody's command to swallow a discrete amount at a certain time. That's not normal. Or you have a lighted camera down your throat. Also not normal. So when we consider that, we should be reading every study with this bias that this is a highly experimental environment. It's Think of it this way. It's reality TV. Do you think that these crazy women on Housewives of whatever would be acting like that if there wasn't a camera? Uh, 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 no, right? So do you think they'd be swallowing like that if there wasn't something down their throat or if there wasn't someone barking, drink the white chalky stuff? No. So that's always one caveat to think about for every swallowing study. It's not like some of these other things where you can sort of just sort of mask the experiment. But what theories do we have in general that we can actually say, you know, gosh, every study is showing that. I'll start with one. To my knowledge, I don't think that there has been a strengthening study, a lingual strengthening study, where they're just pushing isometrically, that has not shown that people get stronger. Mm -hmm. And that, what's the theory behind that? The theory is basically resistance training and muscles. Mm -hmm. That is a theory that's pretty well established, whether it's a bicep, whether it's a tricep, whether it's, you know, your whatever that muscle is for your thumb, for all the finger tapping studies that they keep studying. Um, Dr. Christou would know what that is. Or whether it's your tongue. We're talking about skeletal uh, striated muscle. And if you apply regular resistance, it will get stronger at that task. So that's a theory, in my opinion, that many, many studies have established. The tongue will get stronger. But what it doesn't apply to, so this is where understanding the system makes a difference is, does that mean that their swallow is stronger? That's where people take it. Just because your bicep is stronger, because you were doing curls, does that mean that you can throw a football across the, no, 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 no. Now you're changing tasks, you're taking, maybe bicep strength matters, but it doesn't necessarily just translate into this very specific skill task. What do you guys think? 
That's true. It's also the case for speech, that if you understand speech production and the actual amount of muscle movement you need for it, you realize you don't actually need as much, as much muscle as you would propose. But, uh, you know, I when you say we're trashing on science, I, again, I think it's because people think that these research studies are more important than they are. It's the really important thing are the theories. And, and if you understand the the noisiness involved in research, the per, the probability involved in research, you expect to have these issues. Mm-hmm. So I there's a lot that's obviously that science has given us a lot of theories that has stood the test of time. Uh, it's just that if individual experiments are, are fragile things. Right, right. Alicia? But they're important to build upon that theory. Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't want to, I don't want this to kind of turn into, well, now we have to throw out single, you know, research studies and now clinicians are just going to go back to doing whatever they feel like doing because they have a theory behind it. Um, you know, I think there is merit in, in the research studies in, instead of looking at them in isolation, you take a collection of them and that help builds upon a theory right. and a rationale behind what we're doing. So it's not, you know, so-and-so 2001 said X, it's, you know, these, this is a series of studies that have looked at this concept and this is why it makes sense. But I would argue that even if you take one study, you take it as one study. I mean, that's okay, too. So mm-hmm. uh, in, with dysphagic grand rounds, Rinky and I have something called, um, it's called Science Flash, DGR Science Flash. And it's an idea. It takes into the idea of soundbite science. And we're trying to get it, encourage people to read the main finding and then go read the whole paper themselves and make a decision based on it. So mm-hmm. the most recent one we did was the Shakir exercise, which is laying down and you know, against resistance, putting your head up to try to engage the submental muscles, which eventually will get down to the upper esophageal sphincter. And in this study, they found that when they have people do quote unquote traditional therapy, which is like everything else, versus the Shakir exercise after six weeks, folks with UES issues don't have any differences and changes in the upper esophageal sphincter. They did not find a statistical difference between the two. They did, however, find that folks who did the Shakir exercise had less post-swallow aspiration. To me, there's so many missing bits of information, but why why do I hear that and immediately hear alarm bells? It's because I understand swallowing. Right. And you just because you had less aspiration, it doesn't mean physiology was responsible for that. Right. It doesn't mean that something was better with the Shakir, and if something was, we still don't know what it was after this study. So the reason I'm able to take that one study and say, I think I might know this, and that makes me question that, but I still don't know this, and I'm okay with all that doubt, mm-hmm. right? No diggity, literally, no <laughs> doubt. I don't know anything. Right. It's because I understand the system. So if it shatters your dreams to find this out, it's because you're holding too much weight on something you thought was truth. So if we're pulling the rug out from under you by saying this is this is the best study we have, a controlled study with two different groups on this on this particular exercise, one of the best we have. If you're shattered by that, it's because you were doing the evidence based practice and requiring knowledge based on a single study. And what we're saying is acquire a theory based on what you already know and Mm -hmm. add to that. Yeah. Oh, one other thing is I like to say that clinicians can actually do this themselves (sighs) in their practice. In your practice, you see more patients than I will ever see in virtually any of my studies. If you clear six to 10 patients a day, you've cleared eight patients more than I will see in one day in my research studies. And and I will say this too, is I, I hear a lot of clinicians talk about just reading the abstract, but it's the introduction where you get introduced to the theory behind why yeah. the researcher is doing what they're doing. And that that has a lot of very rich information on why the study happened, why what their hypothesis is. That, as a clinician, will give you a lot of really good information. So are you suggesting that our super long introductions and discussion sections are necessary because I that is my favorite part to write. I Absolutely. love writing the introduction because it sets me up for why the heck I just spent a year doing something. Yes. It's a reminder to me. It's like that moment when your kid really nails that thing, like they get an A and algebra, you're like, yes, I remember why I'm being a parent yes. right now. 
it just is that one thing I get to do. And then everything sort of falls into place. But it's really the introduction, yeah. as you're saying, that is the theory. And if you and skip, the discussion. If you skip the theory, well, the discussion ties in the data yes. with the existing the knowledge. Yes. It's even better, really. Yes. It should be better. Always do this, though, guys. Whenever you guys read an introduction, it needs to be balanced. If you're reading an introduction and says, clearly this works. And the reason we're doing this study is to just look at another population. I've read Eastem studies where they're like, Eastem clearly does this, and it has been used for this, and it works. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What about half the studies that show there's no difference or it doesn't work? So in an introduction, you definitely want it to be balanced. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I think the introduction is a great place for people to at least start reading. Yeah. How about review papers? Oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> you know, we've, we've kind of bashed on it. Not bad. Yeah, we have bashed on the... Empirical. The, yeah, the single studies, but... Um, well, you know, that's what meta-analyses and systematic reviews are supposed to do. But my only worry with those is they take math into account. And you know how I am with math. I know you're Mr. MIT over here. <laughs> but let me just say that my problem is, okay, I'm going to, for an example, the reason you and I are working on this study about sensory stuff, Dr. Lotto, just so you know who I'm talking to, um, is because I, for the second dysphagia grand rounds, we reviewed a paper where they were looking at how much bolus has to be in somebody's mouth before they know they've had it twice as much or four times as much. And the first thing I thought is, wait, you're introducing math and mouthfeel. You have just like shattered the most, the best thing about eating food. Is I have to put math to this crap now? <laughs> like, I don't want to be thinking about mathematical things. It's, what is twice as mouth, twice, twice as much as something in my mouth? And so that's the worry, right? Yeah. That meta-analyses try to put numbers to these things and you have to exclude so many studies that actually maybe are more descriptive and theory based because they don't provide certain yeah. things that actually have a that one study can have a better answer than all the ones that provided the right numbers. Well, you're also combining all the true positive, that's the true. false positives that's right. that have been reported. So it's like, yeah, now yeah. we're really, yeah, I really like reading good um, descriptive review papers that aren't necessarily statistically combining data, but really piecing apart multiple research articles in a way that is more theory-based, is this is why this makes sense, this is what all these papers have said, it's a little more descriptive. Um, I think if they're done well, they can be very valuable. If they're done poorly, they can be damaging. So can I also just add that the people have emotional responses to th certain things and they don't realize they do? Or do you already know this? No, go, go on. <laughs> so do you realize that, okay, let's take something like um, hormone replacement therapy. Totally <laughs> got a bad rap, right? But let me tell you, when my beard comes in thick, I'm going to be really thinking about hormone replacement <laughs> therapy, like come that time, like when I go through the change. I don't care what Matt Lauer said. I'm going to be really like, I'm tired of plucking and I need to hit up my doctor for that. Now, and there were the, there were many flaws in those studies and they had, they found a general group effect to having some general health issues in some people, but you best believe I'm going to read through those studies and I'm going to give it a try because my, you know, it matters to me that I don't have a beard, right? And if that's the only thing I'm going on, so what? I get to make that decision as a patient. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, the question I have is, do we have emotional responses to things and swallowing as well? And I think we do. For instance, there are people who say, I've seen this on Facebook a lot. There's no evidence to support Masako. Okay, fine. Show me the evidence that supports diet modification. Show me the evidence, the long-term study showing the people who went Right. On this thickened liquid versus nothing, not versus something else, just versus nothing, that thickening their liquids was better if they just had a regular diet. Show me the study that follows them and says that they don't come back with pneumonia. Oh, what's that? There isn't one. We thicken the crap out of people's food all day. We are starch. Yeah. So I don't really understand why there's an emotional response to one thing and not to another. And I think that that supersedes the, the, the argument that it's not evidence-based practice. Well, what about all the things that aren't, but right. you feel like you have to do? Right. Like my hormone replacement therapy that I'm about to get. By the way, can I make a suggestion for your uh, podcast moving forward? Maybe. Like a bell or something <laughs> that you get to hit every time you do one of your analogies. <laughs> it's like, and he announced it like, ding, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, but who gets to control the bell? I, I get the no. I will just sit in, and every time you start about the theory of making toast, I get to. I get the, 
What? I think we've made this into a drinking game before. It's a lot more fun. Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds good. Every time you hear the bell, take a shot. You know what? That's what it should be down the hatch. Like every time I make an analogy. She can't help herself, though. I really can't. I would be the drunk. Oh, wait, do I have to drink? You would be on the floor, but you would be this golden opportunity for an analogy. Exactly. You would be raising your glass. No, I really, maybe my analogies get better the drunker I am. They get more provocative. I do know that. I can speak to that. I know, because here we are, and I'm already talking about my beard. Yeah, so let me go back to uh, this discussion about the, the introduction versus everything else in the paper. Um, I, I've actually suggested that we take research methods out of the uh, curriculum, and in part because I think it out gives of the curriculum for clinicians. In every, every clinical discipline or like our discipline or what? Well, our discipline in particular, okay. but almost everyone, because be, it puts the emphasis on the wrong aspects because it puts it on research it puts it on it and not on the ideas in the introduction and you can see this and when you have uh students present papers and so you'll give them a paper yeah. and say present it and they'll start off by saying so they ran 25 subjects half were male half were female like why yeah <laughs> why did they do this study like uh but i'll i they don't, yeah. don't tell you like i want to set up all of this mm -hmm. stuff i and i don't really care can I just say, you're going to need a bell for this, but introduction is foreplay. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, introduction is foreplay. Like, are we getting to the methods, folks? Are a lot we, of times, are I, we getting we, to the I, don't, I don't. I can't even. But you know what? You'll need to get to the methods to get the product, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe you can skip all that together. But I, no, I, no I'm, I'm totally with you. I really think that a lot of research method studies are supposed to be setting students up well, first and foremost is to be um, regular consumers of the literature. Even, you know, it's sort of like exercise. You don't have to love it, but you will get the health benefits if you just go out and do that run. Do it. And after you did it, you feel better that you did it. Even the hardest part is starting that first sentence of the paper. You're like, Fuck, I can't stand yeah. this. I don't want to read this. You can think of a zillion distractions. But then when you really get through it, you're like, huh, and you find yourself thinking. It's just like exercise. But yeah. the more you Dang. make it a routine, I know, <laughs> but at least it's not about the method, the rhythm method. Or <laughs> is, reading, is reading just the abstract, the equivalent of eight-minute abs? No, it's a, it's a quickie. It's, it's, literally, it's literally a prostitute quickie, okay? <laughs> so, so, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, we've discussed this before. So if you take research methods out, what I would put in are, to the curriculum, are more integrative uh, classes where you do, do learn at systems level stuff, even outside. So, you know, if you are going into swallowing or speech pathology or stuff, that getting more of full, you know, neural systems level uh, understanding of, you know, or classes because I think that's what's going to be helpful later on. Mm -hmm. um, being able to, you know, point out the degrees of freedom on a T-test in a paper <laughs> yeah. is just not going to be useful yeah. at any point And you know the other thing is, everyone already knows what a correlation is. Everyone's yeah. like, there's a one-to-one -one relationship between... So I hear people spouting off all kinds of ratios that they learned in high school. So they get a lot of the general concepts of what a research study is trying to get at. But you're right. I mean, if you just throw... I almost feel like you could do an interesting exercise where you throw out methods and you throw out results and you say... Why do we need to know this? And you will find five different theories mm -hmm. on what the point of the study even was and whether this is an important finding or not. And depending on the introduction would tell you whether or not somebody cares about that finding or not. Mm -hmm. So that's that's probably pretty brilliant. But then we'd have to go to Asha and like tell them, hey, guys, what do you think about changing this whole thing that took for? I mean, someone probably fought to get research methods in there. I'm right? sure they did. <laughs> Um, the other thing was that you'd said before that I agree with, which is I would rather go to a clinician who has years of experience and is basic, basing their my therapy on what's worked for them or not mm -hmm. versus someone who spent that same amount of time reading everything in the literature. Here's my caveat there. We have to define work. So in, in, a, yeah. fiel, in a field where – so think about something like mental illness. It doesn't matter what the MRI scan showed, blah, 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 if the person is constantly suicidal. And if you're, con you know what I'm saying? It's like, it, that's great, our, but it, that's fine. I mean, but to kill himself exactly, exactly. There, we are on suicide watch all the time, <laughs> right? But the scan looks good. Thanks for that. So 
if you're, if I agree with you, if this is a clinician who has objective improvement in swallowing plus patient satisfaction, I'm all for it. But that's in our area where the issue is like, I see success with A and I'm like, oh, cool, define success. Well, they're now swallowing thick, uh, you know, thins. Uh, based on what, are, are they aspirating less on thins? Oh, I don't know, I haven't seen their swallow yet. So you're mm-hmm. telling me their swallowing's better, you've never seen their swallow? Mm-hmm, that's what I'm saying. So in a field where objective measures are easy, like, you know, PT, like they're not following, falling, they're functional, sure. But that's our biggest caveat is that, and honestly, I think that more people will read the literature if they were able to get more imaging because they would be relying on actually what they would be questioning what they're doing more. And that's what a lot of people say is when I went from a long-term care facility where I never saw a swallow, and then I started working in acute care where I always saw swallows, everything I did before I questioned. And I actually would listen for people for at ASH and DRS for certain bits of information because now I realize I made all kinds of bad recommendations because I had my blinders on. Mm-hmm. So you see how we have managed to turn that into our constant soapbox yeah. conversation about imaging? I know. Good Lord. Well, this is, I mean, that's an issue in all the areas, including, um, you know, audiology and the, the measures, the metrics of better hearing, um, are actually pretty poor. So I just learned that from you guys last week and in yeah. that uh, talk, like that people can do really well in the audio booth. Is that what we call it again? Audio booth? Yeah. So the audiogram. Yep, that's the, the word. Yes, the audiogram, this <laughs> test of hearing loss. Can we also is... take out the hearing class for speech pathologists? Because clearly I did not use any of that. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, uh, we could. But anyway, the audiogram, which <laughs> is... Um, which is... The gold standard of hearing and hearing loss actually is fairly poorly correlated with people's ability to hear, for instance, speech and noise. Mm-hmm. Um, Meaning and, they can do really well in the audiogram, but they can't hear Jack in a restaurant. Yes. So or it's not you, functional. Or, yes. but no, no, but, is, but isn't the issue not that it's not, it's telling you in this circumstance, this is how well you do. The problem is the circumstances being over interpreted to a, a circumstance that it doesn't apply to. In a quiet audio booth, when you hear these two sounds, can you hear these two sounds? That's real. They heard those two sounds. Now, why would it translate to a very noisy restaurant? That's well, the, the problem, problem is, right? is what it, it's a detection task. And so it's, can you detect this quiet song, sound? But there's almost no hearing task that we care about that's a detection task. So what people care about is hearing speech. Speech right. isn't a detection task. Right. Music. Music isn't a detection task. Right, right. And so it's it doesn't necessarily translate to those so that's our clinical swallowing evaluation where it's like uh you didn't cough so sounds like it went the right way so we're just gonna (laughs) leave it there and walk off right Mm -hmm. it's a detective detection task oh my god we're back to that screening question okay so shall we wrap it up with a a last statement if you have a plea if you have a question (laughs) whatever you have from each of you Oh, you go first. No, I don't want to go first because I feel like um, I'm going to get a bell ringing for my analogy. <laughs> you are going to get a bell ringing. Okay, then I will. Well, what advice do we have for clinicians? I mean, let's let's focus it that way. It's the majority of people that are listening to this podcast is not researchers particularly, but clinicians that mm-hmm. are trying to delve into the literature and make their practice better. What what can we tell them? Well. Here's what I tell, and this is mostly to audiologists, but I'll give the same um, advice here. I think for many people who are clinicians, the idea of going into literature and having to not just find a paper, but then figure out how good the evidence is. So that's part of it is not just part of evidence-based practice isn't just did you find a paper, but how good is this study and how reliable is this study? And I would find that completely daunting to have to go into the literature, find it, and evaluate it. But that's what I do for them with dysphagia grand rounds. I take them through a paper and say why something is good and, and not good. But the problem is that that's what research methods class should be to me. It should be how do you evaluate science? And it doesn't have to be in our field. There should be benchmarks of things that should be like controlling for something. Are these measures valid, right? Yes. Well, the, but the problem being that... Even if I run the study completely correctly, mm-hmm. the 
the statistics that people use now, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able. I mean, when I'm I'm brought in all the time to evaluate experiment studies because the t- statistics now they bring in statisticians. It's not what you got in your statistics class sure, anymore. Sure. So can you evaluate whether the statistics, which mm-hmm. is the end product, giving mm-hmm. you is this the right or wrong answer? The filter. It's yes. Can you actually evaluate that? And right. I'm telling you that most research scientists mm-hmm. can't evaluate MIT, their own data. MIT, I'm telling you, I probably can't right well, now. Well, so I'm saying it, if I was then a clinician who I'm not even trained to do that. Sure. Right. And that's my, part of my job is to determine whether these the statistical analysis actually mm-hmm. answers the question I mm-hmm. want. That would be horribly daunting. Yeah. Okay. And what I'm saying is I don't think that that should be a responsibility. I agree. That that's the that those studies are not there for you to look at and say here's my evidence and take that into the clinic. Theories, these are things are to test theories. Yeah. And so we can take these the, all of this evidence and evaluate the theory relative to mm-hmm. that. That's what you should be taking into the clinic is if you understand the theories and the ideas about how the systems work mm-hmm. uh that that is what you take into the clinic with you. And I think that's far less daunting than actually looking at those numbers that you hate so much. You know what I think it's like? Uh, get the bell out. It's it's sort of like <laughs> it's sort of like if you have to go to different countries, you know what generally they say Russians Russia's like. Generally this is what to expect in Jamaica and generally in Japan do this. Like okay, maybe don't show your feet here and like you know bow there. You have enough information to not end up on the street naked and holding yourself in the fetal position and kicked out or in jail somewhere. But can you be a fluid, sort of like savvy person who blends? No, you can't. But you have enough to function in that country. And you're saying you're never going to be fluent in Mandarin tomorrow because we didn't train you for that. But when you go to China, just these are some general guidelines that you should be aware of. These are the theories to understand that most Chinese people say, yeah, I would say that's true about my country. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think part of the turnoff with the literature is is clinicians being intimidated by the method section, and they get to uh, Kreskal Wallace test was done on non-parametric data, blah blah blah, and then they're like, I don't understand this; it's confusing. Um, and I and I understand and I appreciate that, but I think you know not to belabor the point, but don't skim through the introduction; read it very thoroughly understand generally what they did in the experiment to understand if you understand swallowing that's the thing these are clinicians reading papers about swallowing you understand swallowing it's not like going into if i read a paper on gosh hypoxic respiratory um how about vision Vision, yeah <laughs> i don't know out of yeah. our field you know basic science stuff gosh, I'd have a hard time even understanding the theory behind mm-hmm. what they're doing because I don't understand it. Yeah. Um, but you're swallowing clinicians. You should be able to digest and read, no pun intended, kind of intended, the theory behind what they did in the paper and make sense of it and come to your own conclusions. And I think when you eliminate that intimidation going into it, I think you can come out of it with an open mind and start to generate your own beliefs and theories about your practice. So I'm glad you said that because we can end, that's a nice segue into two things. One is scientists play a role here too. Mm -hmm. If scientists in swallowing truly believe that we're doing this science to help the patients and the vast majority of us are clinicians turned scientists, so we started out focusing on the patient, then we need to write our science such that most people can understand it. Mm -hmm. I've learned to do that over time. I'm better at it. Sometimes you get beat and bludgeoned and battered by the reviewer such Mm -hmm. that you have to change that language back to something highly scientific because, and even if you try to argue back and say, well, most people reading this will be clinicians, you'll still be like, well, then it's not going to get published. You're worried that it's going to get rejected, so you start changing it. So we can, we can even say operational definitions of things that are are clinical terms at the very least. So that's Mm -hmm. one thing. That's our responsibility. The responsibility of every clinician is to truly understand swallowing, Yeah. right? Yeah. It doesn't matter what kind of theory, I mean, what kind of um, study I read about certain things, I already know, right? If, if someone tries to uh, rattle off some methods about stuff you know you did, like in your house, 
nobody knows your layout of your house better than you, you're gonna be like, uh, that's just wrong. I'm sorry, but I know, yeah. I know my house. If there's something I know, they can't fool you on that. Right. So at the end of the day, the more that you understand swallowing, something I feel like I'm always saying, the better you're gonna be at grasping the theory. Yeah. And if you don't understand swallowing, like you said, if, if I'm reading something about, you know, bicuspids or like the heck, something about teeth, that's like some deep thing. I'm like, I, I, I don't know. Like you went, I just know I have them and they work right now. Right. I can't read three pages on theory on that. But in my area, I can really evaluate that well and add to yeah. my knowledge base. And that's something that you don't need a study for, right? There's a lot of basic information about there mm -hmm. about how swallowing works. And so that's something up, that's a practical consideration that every clinician can do. Mm -hmm. Ding! I, I added something about house layout. Yeah, I was, was going <laughs> to ding you, but I decided to let you finish up there. Well, Dr. Lotto, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I, wait, I'm coming again. I'm going to be the, the analogy bell ringer. You are? Yeah. yeah. I'll just sit here and push the bell. So, you know what? How did it feel to sit around and listen to a swallowing nerds? Uh, I'm, I'm now, you know, I've done this quite a, quite often now. I've sat You're not a swallowing events. nerd, but you are a nerd who swallows. So in some sense. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm picking up on enough of the lingo to be dangerous. Because every, <laughs> every once in a while, I try to make like an analogy over to the swallowing. And then I watch all of you smile like I'm a, like I'm <laughs> a child, cute. like trying to <laughs> like, sing active, one of your favorite songs. Active suppression. I'm going to tell you something. When it comes to swallowing, it's almost like every grown person, ha you can real you realize that they have like a 15 year old boy just controlling the levers in their body and they're actually not a grown-up because suddenly they started like they're like all little you know so i was wondering if maybe you were going to be one of those i know because I, I probably would have before but i did tell people i was doing a swallowing podcast and, and i did get a number of <laughs> raised left eyebrows yes and this is this is purely clinical you have to emphasize this is not what you think all right well thanks for joining us thank you with science